On the basis of God's word, I declare to you this morning, there is a God. There is a holy law. And in the name of Jesus, wonder of wonders, there is forgiveness. How wonderful is God's forgiveness of our sins? John Piper explores the wonders of forgiveness by turning to Acts 2, 37 to 41 in this episode of Light and Truth. This sermon was originally preached at Bethlehem Baptist Church on November 25th, 1990. Now I want to hold out to you this morning glorious hope. A hope and a news that is so good it defies all human description, exceeds all human expectation, fills the heart with unspeakable joy and glorified, as Peter called it. In verse 37, these people were cut to the heart because God had made Jesus Lord and Christ and they had killed him. And they saw immediately the implications of this preaching. God had endorsed Jesus as the great miracle worker, the one who died for sin, the one raised from the dead, the one exalted to God's right hand, the one pouring out of the Spirit, and they'd killed him. They were utterly at odds with God. They were radically against God. They had violated God, offended God, transgressed God. They could not in any sense affirm themselves, nor should they, nor did God affirm them in that moment. They were evil, and they needed something desperate. They needed to be forgiven, and they needed the Holy Spirit to inhabit them. And their only hope was, might it be that this God against whom we've sinned by killing his son could still be God and let it go? Just let it go. So I take the words of verse 40 at the end there, and I apply it to you with as much urgency and as much earnestness as I know how in in the American setting in which we live, which is radically relativistic. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Be saved from this crooked generation. I just beg of you, be saved from the crookedness of this generation. And what is the essence of the crookedness and deviousness of this generation? The essence of the crookedness of American culture is that we continually create salvation without God and therefore salvation without law and therefore salvation without forgiveness, and therefore salvation without hope. That's the deviousness from which I plead with you to wake up because it is pervasive in the church and out of the church. Relativism, the minimizing of God's absolute character and its bearing upon our lives, is... Epidemic. 
Save yourselves from this crooked generation. On the basis of God's word, I declare to you this morning, there is a God. There is a holy law. And in the name of Jesus, wonder of wonders, there is forgiveness. That's need number one. Now number two. Repent, verse 38, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the first need. Now the second need. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, I don't just want to be forgiven. I want God. I want him. I don't just want a declaration off in some courtroom. I want God. As close as he'll come to me, I want him. As much of a friend as he'll be to me, I want him. As much fullness of himself as he'll give me, I want him. And that's the other gift. You want that too, if you know what your heart's desire really is. But let's ask the question, now what is this? Gift of the Holy Spirit. Is this what we've been talking about? Is this the baptism of the Spirit, chapter 1, verse 5? Is this the empowering of the Holy Spirit, extraordinarily, chapter 1, verse 8? Is this the filling of the Holy Spirit, chapter 2, verse 4? Is this the outpouring of the Holy Spirit from the risen Jesus, chapter 2, verse 33? Is this the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 9, 1 Corinthians 6, 19? What is the gift of the Holy Spirit that's being promised here. And I spent more time thinking about that question on Friday than any other question in this message. What is being promised here? The longer I thought and the more I meditated, the more I came to the conclusion there is no warrant in this text for choosing between these alternatives and saying it's this but not this and it's this but not this and it's this but not this. So my answer to the question, what is the gift of the Holy Spirit, is simply this. What are you promised when you repent and are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus? I think you are promised this. If you repent and are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, you will be given the Holy Spirit. And from that day on, you will have the Holy Spirit. And when you have the Holy Spirit... You have whatever the Holy Spirit chooses to do in and on you. You have him. And so that maybe we could divide it into two at least, although I think they mean when you repent, when you identify yourself with Jesus Christ, you may have the assurance from that day forward that the Holy Spirit is yours as a gift to be your friend and change your life and work in and on and for you. That's one. And by implication, you may also from that day forward pray toward and expect that he will begin to empower you 
and give you the extraordinary blessings and clothe you with power from on high, according to Luke 24, 49, that we need for world evangelization. And you may also seek him for all the gifts that he may be pleased to give you. In other words, once you have the Holy Spirit made over to you by covenant through repentance and faith, then you may open your life to and expect and pray toward all his fullness and all his gifts. So I just don't, I don't feel any constraint in this text to say, well, it has to be this, not this, or it has to be this and not that. I just think you will be given the Holy Spirit from that day forward. He will be yours. He will dwell within you. And in his sovereign plan for you, He will gift you accordingly. He will baptize you accordingly. He will fill you accordingly. He will clothe you according to his sovereign will. And what we've been doing in these weeks, those of us who know what it is to walk with a hand in the Father's hand, glad across the bridge, are simply asking for more and more manifestations of his extraordinary blessing for the doing of more good for people in this city and around the world. Those are the two needs that they had and we had. The need for forgiveness and the need for God, the Holy Spirit indwelling and empowering for all that they were capable of doing through him. Now, what shall we do to get These two blessings. That's the question of verse 37. What shall we do? And the answer is given in verse 38 in two parts. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. Now, let's just take those one at a time. First, repentance, and then baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ. What is repentance? This is familiar territory for many, but... It's good to tell the old, old story again and again. First, a negative. Repentance is not merely feeling sorry for what you have done. Now, the reason I say that is because verse 37 is a description of how bad they felt, is it not? They were cut to the heart. They felt awful to be at odds with God, to have killed his son. And they cry out, what shall we do? If that had been repentance, it would have been an odd answer to say, well, the way to solve this problem is to repent. See, so repentance clearly is more than being cut to the heart. Repentance is more than feeling rotten for the bad things you've done. Repentance, I believe it's it's including that, but it's more than that. Repentance is following through now recognizing where you've been heading in being at odds with God and turning and going toward God. We all have heard, I believe, somewhere along the way that repentance means a change of mind or a change of heart that turns from the pathway of sin and disobedience and rebellion and self-reliance and swings right around 180 degrees and goes toward God. Now, let me show you that in a text. In Acts 26:18, Jesus is speaking to the Apostle Paul as Paul recounts his conversion. 
And he describes how he's going to bring people to the experience of forgiveness. Instead of using the word repentance, he uses the word turn. And so I think you can see it's a paraphrase of repentance. Uh, the verse goes, Acts 26, 18, I send you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive Forgiveness of sins. Now, that's just a paraphrase of repentance, is it not? Turning from darkness to light, from Satan to God. And you could keep going with the alternative. Self to reliance on Jesus, sin to righteousness, and so on. It's just a decisive turning. It doesn't mean you live the rest of your life in perfection. The Bible does not teach that we earn or gain salvation through becoming perfect at the point of conversion. But there is a difference between being perfect and having the course of your life altered. It's like a river that's flowing in one direction that's all muddy. You turn that river and it may be a long time before the mud clears up. You know there's a difference in your own life between a decisive turn and the gradual cleansing that comes through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. So that's repentance. Now, the second means of obtaining forgiveness and the Holy Spirit is being baptized in the name of Jesus. You see that in verse 38. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. There are groups that teach that baptism by water is an essential means of being forgiven. Now, take that phrase, essential means. I choose that very carefully. By essential means, I mean you cannot conceive of being forgiven apart from it or before it. That's how essential it is for certain groups. And I get the, the kickback from those groups often in my office. This verse is one of their main arguments. Verse 38. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. They say, there it is. As plain as day. If you want to be forgiven, you get baptized. And if you don't get baptized, you don't have forgiveness. And therefore, baptism is an essential means of obtaining forgiveness. Will you make it that? Now... When you read verse 38, it could carry that meaning. I don't deny that. It could carry that meaning. Let me suggest another meaning and then try to justify that meaning, not from Paul, where it would be real easy to argue that we're justified by faith, but from Acts. Now, here's an alternative reading of verse 38. Let me paraphrase it like this. Receive the forgiveness of your sins by repenting and by identifying yourself with the name of Jesus Christ in faith, which you then signify through baptism. Now, that's my understanding of this verse. And, and, and I, I want to make sure that you ask yourself, is that fair? Are we twisting the verse? by making baptism the act 
in which we signify our faith and repentance, which themselves are the essential means by which we are forgiven. All right, now let me try to justify that reading by taking you on a quick whirlwind tour. This will only take a few minutes through several texts in the book of Acts where Paul and Peter say that forgiveness of sins or salvation is given to faith without any mention of baptism. First, Acts 2, verse 21. Peter comes to the end of his sermon or quotation of Joel there, and he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Period. So you get the impression that the essential means by being saved, of being saved, is calling upon the name of the Lord. Or, chapter 10, verse 43, Peter is coming to the end of his sermon to the Gentiles at Cornelius' house. Listen to the hope that he holds out to them. In verse 43, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone, watch this now, Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name, period. No mention of baptism. When he recounts that event, by the way, the Holy Spirit fell upon them before they were baptized. And then they got baptized in verses 44 and 45 of chapter 10. When Peter comes to the council in Jerusalem, chapter 15, verse 9, and tells them what happened, listen to how he describes it. God made no distinction between us Jews and those Gentiles, but cleansed their hearts by faith. Period. No mention of baptism again. Or... Take Paul's preaching in chapter 13, verses 38 and 39 in Antioch. He concludes with this promise. Let it be known to you, therefore, brethren, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone that believes is freed from everything from which you could not be free in the law of Moses. Period. No mention of baptism again. Two more. When the earthquake shook the prison there in chapter 16, uh, verse 31, remember the jailer cried out, what must I do to be saved? And this earthquake shorthand reads, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Period. He didn't say be baptized, though he was baptized. And finally, in Ephesus, in Acts 20, Verses 20 to 21, where Paul sums up his message and says, I didn't leave anything essential out, and here's what I preached. Listen, I did not shrink. This is 20, verse 20. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith. In our Lord Jesus Christ, period. No mention of baptism in that sermon either. Now, my point in saying that in these many places, baptism is not mentioned. My point is not to say baptism is unimportant. My point is not even to say it's not essential. Oh, that's a tricky word, isn't it? My point is simply to say the essential means by which we receive the gift of forgiveness is by identifying with Jesus Christ through 
faith. And then baptism assumes its profound and proper role as the public expression and acting out of that faith and that identification with Jesus Christ as we are buried with him in baptism and raised with him to walk in newness of life. And our Lord Jesus commanded us, go and make disciples, baptizing them. And therefore, we will baptize disciples. But we will not say that the thief hanging on the cross could not this day be with Jesus in paradise because he had not been touched with water. Nor will we say that any baby who dies in childbirth without having the holy rites cannot go to heaven. Nor will we say many mistaken ideas that I believe come from insisting that water baptism is the essential means by which forgiveness of sins is obtained. Well, let me close by simply summing up in a sentence or two the good news of this text. And I really want you to hear it because it is unspeakably glorious and good news. Namely, murderers of the Son of God can be forgiven. Do you hear that now? Murderers of the Son of God are offered freely the gift of forgiveness and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to ask you, is there anybody in this room, I wonder, who would dare to say to me, I have done something worse than that. I have done something more heinous, more terrible than to kill the Lord of glory to nail him to the cross, to cry crucify him, to spear his side, to spit on him and throw stones on him. I've done something worse than that. I don't know what it would be. I can't conceive of it. And therefore, I'm holding out to everybody in this room the promise of Jesus Christ. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Repent, turn from the old way to the new way. Identify with Jesus Christ through faith. In due time, follow him in the obedience of baptism. And you will be forgiven everything you have ever done or ever will do wrong. And the Holy Spirit will come to you. He will minister to you. He will help you and guide you and empower you. And little by little, from one degree of glory to the next bring you home. This is Light and Truth, God-centered preaching to help you see Christ clearly and treasure Him truly. I'm your host, Dan Kruver. Thank you for listening. On our next episode, John Piper continues our series, Christ Builds His Church, with a sermon titled, Joy, Awe, and Freedom. I hope you'll join us. For more resources, visit DesiringGod.org.